Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. Before I get to today's episode, I wanted to give you guys a little life update. Um, it has been my dream to go to graduate school and pursue a PhD in neuroscience since before I started college. I think it was like the second year of high school or something. I applied for the second time, actually last November and December, and I interviewed with schools in January and February of this year. And good news, I will be headed to my dream graduate school in September. I don't know what kind of research I will be doing quite yet, but I will probably be sticking around the sensory and motor neuroscience questions. I hope that provides a little bit of explanation for my extended absence from this podcast in the last few months. I've been doing big career things for myself. Um, applying to grad school took everything out of me. It was so much work. Um, and then I gave myself a little break, but it has all paid off. Um, I also wanted to say how grateful I am for this podcast and for all of you listening. Neuroscience Amateur Hour has been an incredible way to develop my scientific communication skills and figure out which areas of the field I really enjoy studying and which I very much don't. So thank you. I wouldn't be here without you. And who knows, when I finish grad school, this podcast might become neuroscience slightly less amateur hour. But let's get down to business. So today I want to talk about alien hand syndrome the truly mind-numbingly crazy phenomenon where one's hand is no longer under control of the mind. In fact, some say it's as if the limb has a mind of its own. Honestly, that's kind of a throwback to the octopus episode where each one of the eight limbs fundamentally had its own neuroscience uh, nervous system. But we are humans. We're not octopuses. How can something controlled by your brain, your motor neurons, your electrical pulses ever conceivably have a mind of its own. Let's explore. So the disorder was first described in 1908 by Kurt Goldstein, who saw the case of a 57-year-old woman who had suffered a stroke and thereafter perceived her left hand as having a will of its own. The term alien hand syndrome, or la main étrangère, please excuse my poor French, um, was coined only in 1972 by doctors Brion and Jedinak. Uh, it's also important to note that it's not just the hand that can be affected, it is pretty much any limb or combination of limbs, resulting in the broader disorder being called alien limb syndrome, although we will be focusing on the hand today. I get the feeling that it is the most common version and the best documented. So the predominant symptom is not only the inability to control the hand, but precisely the denial of ownership of the limb, while simultaneously having the hand exhibit simple or complex movements. In some instances, the person with the disorder might not even recognize that their hand is moving until someone else draws their attention to the behavior. Symptoms vary widely, and I want to start talking about this by looking at a 1992 case study by doctors Duty and Yankovic. Yankovic? Uh, which examined seven patients who described having an alien limb. Uh, it's important to note that they excluded anyone with a diagnosed movement disorder, such as Parkinson's, because that is a completely different rowboat. 
So these patients had either some form of neurodegeneration or they had experienced multiple strokes in their lives, and that led to the development of the alien hand syndrome disorder. Okay, so now for the symptoms. All of the patients had difficulty carrying out verbal commands with the affected limb, such as if someone was like, oh, hey, can you pick up the apple off the table or something? Um, And they were unable to do that or had a lot of difficulty doing that. And almost all of the patients exhibited non-goal-directed motor activity, such as posturing or grasping or groping. (laughs) Yikes. Also, a quick clarification. When I say goal-directed behavior, I mean that the action is deliberate, acting towards a desired goal and not reflexive. Uh, This is one of those words where at first glance you kind of sit there and you say, okay, this fundamentally makes sense, but then when you try to define it in the field of neuroscience, it gets kind of wonky. Goal-directed behavior depends on two capabilities. First, one must be able to anticipate the outcome of the action, and second, one must be able to choose between different anticipated outcomes depending on their current value, computed on the basis of the nature of the rewards, and one's current motivational state. But, sorry, that was, that was a little bit of a tangent. Uh, tangent aside, let's get back to talking about the symptoms of alien hand syndrome. So two of the patients in this 1992 case study had self-destructive behaviors, which were purposeful. Um, I don't I didn't really see a clarification on that one, but I imagine things like maybe pulling hair or punching or like hitting something specific, um, as well as non as the non-goal-directed behaviors. Um, many of the patients had trouble with bimanual coordination, such as taking off or putting on glasses. Others described symptom, symptoms including goal-directed behaviors like touching the face or stroking the hair or picking up a pen and scribbling a little bit. One rather terrifying example was someone describing how one hand tried to turn left while the other tried to turn right while driving a car, which is terrifying to think about. In general, though, symptoms have been placed into two boxes. Complex, unwilled motor acts, such as intermanual conflicts, so conflicts between the two hands, Mirror movements, where one hand will make a movement and the other hand will make the same movement, but not not consciously for the patient. Um, Interference, so one hand is kind of fucking with the other. Um, And the pushing aside of the directed limb by the autonomous limb. The other classification, the other box, is simple, unwilled, quasi-reflexive actions, such as autonomous reaching, grasping, and utilization behavior, automatic limb withdrawal, or levitation, so somebody's hand will just like start to, to rise. And another aspect of this, which I didn't research very much, but um, it was the presence of objects in the environment that made the patient or I guess specifically the alien hand, more likely to interact with them. Um, So, for example, if there's like a kettle sitting there with the handle pointing towards you or an uncapped pen with a piece of paper sitting next to it, um, you would be more likely to interact with those objects. I think they're called affordances. And if you are curious, I linked a paper in the show notes that will go into more depth, more in depth into this. Um, But I haven't specifically spent a bunch of time looking into this caveat. 
Uh, I bring up the, this 1992 paper because I wanted to describe the incredible, incredibly wide variety of symptoms that have been reported by people suffering from this disorder and how incredibly complex it must be to tie these symptoms to a specific brain area or neural dysfunction. However, I think the part that puzzles me the most is the goal-directed behavior aspect, um, the part where it's like it's not just a hand flailing around or making miscellaneous movements. They're purposeful in some way. So it doesn't seem to be an issue in the brain sending a signal to the hand to move, but it almost seems like an issue in the lack of perception that the signal is coming from your brain. Um, I don't know. It almost feels like it's missing some piece of the feedback chain. Uh, but I guess we will find out. I also thought it was pretty funny that individuals dealing with this disorder have even named or personified their alien hand. Researchers Rochelle Duty and Yankovic, who are also the authors of the 1992 paper I was talking about, described a patient who named her limb Baby Joseph because the hand would have a tendency to pinch the patient's nipples. And the patient described these as, quote, mischievous behaviors that were akin to biting during nursing, which I thought was really funny. Uh, I think the symptoms can be a bit hard to describe sometimes. And if you have the time and the energy, I actually recommend looking up a YouTube video or something to get a better understanding of what alien hand syndrome looks like. It is very freaky. So. Let's dive into the causes and the possible brain dysfunctions that lead to the brain not recognizing the movement of one's own body. It turns out that there are a multitude of possible causes affecting a multitude of brain regions. I know, big surprise. Possible causes range from brain tumors, strokes, aneurysms. Uh, an aneurysm is when there is an abnormal bulge or ballooning in the wall of the blood vessel, which can burst and cause bleeding in the brain. Uh, it could be brain damage from an injury or a disorder like Perry-Romberg syndrome. I had actually never heard of this, but apparently it is a very rare condition that involves the progressive slow breakdown and atrophy of the skin and soft tissues of the face, uh, generally only on one side of the face. And curiously, while this is a disease that affects primarily the muscles and the skin, there are neurological symptoms that occur, such as seizures and migraines, and that is probably what may lead to the development of alien hand syndrome. Another uh, disorder that has been linked is Creutzfeldt-Jakob syndrome, which if you've listened to my episode about mad cow disease, you might know that Creutzfeldt-Jakob uh, disease is a neurodegenerative disorder caused by a cellular glycoprotein known as a prion. Uh, if you're curious and you want to learn more about those terrifying little fuckers, I am actually quite proud of that episode and you should take a listen. If you feel like I'm listing almost every brain disorder in the book, trust me, I also feel like I'm getting there. Uh, it seems like there are so many possible causes of alien hand syndrome and so many different presentations. However, research, uh, researchers Feinberg et al. proposed in 1992 that there are two main subtypes of alien hand syndrome, colossal and frontal. So let's focus on that for now. Uh, scientists have also postulated that a AHS, or alien hand syndrome, can affect the posterior regions of the brain as well and produce a posterior variant of AHS. So frontal alien hand syndrome occurs mostly in the dominant hand, 
and is associated with reflexive grasping, groping, and compulsive manipulation of tools and items. Patients are aware that the limb belongs to them, but have difficulty controlling or suppressing such movements. This version is most often associated with damage in the supplementary motor area, remember that one, cingulate region, or a corpus callosum injury. And I'll get more into corpus callosum stuff in a bit. It's thought that frontal AHS occurs when the primary motor cortex controlling hand movement is isolated from the premotor cortex's influence. Therefore, the brain is still able to command some of the body's movements, but it cannot generate self-control over all of these movements. So the reason this would be important is because the primary motor cortex is responsible for the execution of voluntary movements, whereas the premotor cortex is involved in the selection of the correct motor plan for voluntary movements. If communication is disrupted between these two brain regions, it makes sense that an individual would not be able to plan and control for these movements. And one specific theory as to how this happens is through motor control theory. Motor control theory is the concept that awareness and control of action are tightly linked. They both have internal representation models. So an intention to act, like a, a, yeah, produces a motor command to achieve the desired goal. So for example, if you say, I want to pick up a cup of coffee, your brain will generate an internal, like a, I guess a command signal to say, okay, we're going to move our hand to pick up this cup of coffee. Afterwards, the brain generates an, uh, an efference copy, which is an internal representation of the physical action. And that efference copy provides a prediction model of the sensory effect of the movement. And then this internal representation is compared with the actual sensory feedback. So if you pick up the, cu the cup of coffee, your brain is like, okay, I will anticipate that this cup of coffee weighs, I don't know, like half a pound. That's a really heavy cup of coffee. How, how heavy is a cup of coffee? I have to Google this. Hold on. I was actually not far off with my half pound theory, but that's irrelevant. Uh, so when you pick up the cup of coffee, your brain sends that efference copy which says, okay, I anticipate the weight of this on my hand. Um, and then your brain will compare the actual weight to the, of the cup of coffee to like the predicted uh, weight. And the point is, if the feedback matches the prediction, the sensory event is experienced as self-caused, but otherwise it's perceived as external and independent of your choices. The pre-supplementary motor area, which I mentioned before as an important brain region for frontal AHS, is linked to this internal prediction network. Thus, you fuck it up and you get a dysfunction in both awareness and volition. So that's one version. Another is colossal AHS, which you might recognize sounds like corpus callosum, the bundle of over 200 million myelinated nerve fibers that connect the two hemispheres to each other. Fun fact, corpus callosum means tough body. There is a ton of sensory, motor, and cognitive information that is constantly being transferred via this connective tissue to the opposite hemisphere, and this neural superhighway, quote, is really important for proper coordination across the body. The kind of alien hand syndrome that is associated with corpus callosum injuries is characterized by conflict between the two hands. So when the patient wants one hand to perform a certain action, like pick up something, 
the other hand ends up doing it. One interesting caveat of colossal AHS is the idea that there is interhemispheric inhibition. So in a healthy person, one hemisphere is controlling a limb. We're going to use our pick up a cup of coffee example. Um, So for example, if you want to pick up a cup of coffee with your left hand, the right hemisphere is controlling the left arm. And simultaneously, the right hemisphere is also suppressing the left hemisphere. So the idea is that if you damage that suppression, you might get unwanted movement in the other limb. You might ask, wait, but why would one hemisphere inhibit the other? So visualize the cup of coffee. Uh, There's a ton of ways that you can bring a cup of coffee to your mouth, right? You could pick it up with your left hand or your right hand. And once you decide that you want to pick it up with your right hand, your brain somehow has to stop your left hand from also trying to pick up the cup of coffee and then knocking everything over. And then you're cranky because you paid $2.99 for that cup of coffee. And then you haven't consumed enough caffeine that day. Long story short, interhemispheric inhibition fundamentally exists to prevent competing outputs. And like I said, um, proper coordination across the body. Finally, uh, a posterior variant has been described, and it predominantly affects the non-dominant hand. It is associated with strong feelings of disassociation with the affected limbs and uh, very simple abnormal motor activity, such as the limb levitating or non-purposeful movements. The precise pathophysiology or how it works in the brain is unknown, but it's believed that there is some sort of dysfunction in neuronal connectivity, which makes sense. Damage most commonly associated with this variant occurs in the parietal lobe of the opposite hemisphere, specifically posterior postcentral gyrus, posterior primary sensory cortex, or tertiary somatosensory cortex. In rare cases, the occipital lobe or the thalamus may be involved. The inferior parietal lobe receives input from various neuronal pathways and then coordinates motor output, so fuckery in this area can lead to the inappropriate release of motor activity without a necessary like checks and balances uh, from sensory stimuli. And while we have put alien hand syndrome into these nice boxes, frontal, colossal, and posterior, it is always important to note that exceptions to these classifications do occur. So... Is AHS curable? Unfortunately, not in the classic sense of bing bang, give the man some medication and send him on his way kind of thing. I think you can fundamentally treat the underlying cause, such as a stroke or a tumor, or um, undergo physical rehabilitation to develop the tools needed to deal with the alien hand on a daily basis. However, with neurodegenerative diseases like Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, you can't really expect any sort of permanent resolution to occur. I found this paper detailing the the rehabilitation of a man who had suffered an ischemic stroke, and then doctors observed that his right hand was unwittingly grabbing objects and then getting in the way of his daily living activities. Uh, He started doing multidisciplinary rehabilitation, but specifically with regards to the alien hand, he started learning compensation strategies and practicing bimanual tasks. So I suppose that there is no cure, but with the right approach, it is possible to live in harmony with the limb. Other treatment approaches have included mirror box therapy, which is based on the observation that a reflection compatible with the image of the affected hand could help improve motor control, although it seems like that is very much an ongoing area of research. 
Also, it turns out that I was not uh, completely correct in my um, initial statement. There are some medications that individuals can take to help with the alien hand. A case report in 2010 talked about a 13-year-old girl with symptoms of posterior AHS after a brain hernia that had occurred five years prior. She was treated with daily clonazepam, which resulted in a significant reduction in hand elevation and the resolution of grasping. Uh, clonazepam is a medication that is used to control and prevent seizures and panic disorder. It's a benzodiazepine. It is not exactly known how it works, but it's thought to increase the effects of an inhibitory, inhibitory neurotransmitter called GABA. Um, an overly simplified explanation is that it decreases the level of activity in the brain. However, unfortunately for this kid, it seems that the clonazepam treatment was stopped following the occurrence of like, side effects, so not worth it in that case. Um, after that, I read that they injected her arm with Botox, <laughs> um, and that seemed to work uh, because Botox kind of just like freezes everything. You know, that's why they put it in your face to not get the wrinkles. Um, but yeah, that... That was a really, really unusual case and honestly kind of an unusual use of Botox, but it seems to have worked for her. So good for her. But yeah, unfortunately, alien hand syndrome is one of those disorders that you just kind of have to learn how to live with. And there's just a ton of causes and presentations and brain regions involved. But that is a bite-sized look at the neuroscience behind the freaky, freaky thing that is alien hand syndrome. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. I definitely did. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for any cool figures. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neuroscienceamateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neuroscienceamateurhour on Instagram. This podcast is available on every platform I could reasonably find except Pandora for some reason, um, so please recommend it to your friends and your loved ones. And if you're feeling so inclined to financially support my work, please buy me a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com uh, slash neuroscience. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, contact me, and you might see an episode about it soon. To everybody that has already reached out, um, please know that I see your messages. Please know that I have a uh, paper somewhere uh, in my desk that I am keeping a running list of everybody's suggestions. I'm hoping to get to them pretty soon. Um, but happy researching. Have a great day. Get yourself a little treat. I don't know, Starbucks or something. And I will see you again soon. <laughs>